So Psalm 2 is, is really a psalm calling us to show insight and to take warning. And as a good illustration of what the Lord is asking us to do, I'll just use the modern, just what happened this week with Hurricane Ivan. You know, as happens with most uh, Category 4 or 5 storms, there's a, an a evacuation notice, and sometimes it's voluntary, and sometimes it's in, it's commanded. You you have to do this. But the storm comes, this big, massive storm, and and people who are in the way, some listen and evacuate. Others choose not to listen. Now, in our fallen world, we understand some of the reasons why that is. One is the news always overhypes the storms. That's one reason. So they really don't know how strong the storm is. And secondly, it's a bit unpredictable. Is it really going to hit? Is it not going to hit? So many people choose to stay, and they really don't have much damage. They do okay. Um, but there are people who choose to stay. They choose to ignore the warning, and they get caught. Right? The storm surge blasts through their front door. They've got no upstairs, nowhere to retreat. They go to the roof, and they call 911, only to be told, sorry, it's too dangerous for us to send anybody out in the storm right now. You'll just have to manage on your own. Some do manage, some don't. The difference here with Psalm 2 is that we have a message of precise hit. We have a message that's not overhyped. We have a message that's coming directly to mankind. And we ignore the warning to our peril. It, this, this psalm really dovetails very well with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is to the individual. It's an invitation and a warning. This, this psalm is really to the nations. And it is mostly a warning, and you'll see at the end it's an invitation. The Lord warns rulers and nations of the impending judgment and really the futility of their rebellion against Jesus Christ, the King. It's their, their rebellion is futile. And so at the end of this psalm, really the, the Lord calls kings and rulers to exercise insight, that is discernment, and to take warning, right? to fear the king, to embrace his kingship. That, that's really the message of Psalm 2. And uh, Psalm 2 is broken up into four really paragraphs or thoughts. I'll call it four voices. And we're just going to tackle each one of these as we go through it. I'll read it. Instead of reading the whole psalm altogether, I'm just going to read these uh, section by section, voice by voice. The first voice that we hear from is the voice of the rebellious nations. We see this in verses 1 to 3. And, and before we get to the voice of the rebellious nations, you, you, you get the psalmist declaring, uh, the, the really asking the question, why are the nations at an uproar? Now before we kind of dig into that, wh why he's asking that question, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. First of all, as I said, Psalm 2 is a complement to Psalm 1. And, and Psalm 2 really takes us from the individual level, zooms out to the national level, still calling individuals to repentance, but its focus is on kings and rulers who lead those nations. Psalm 2 doesn't have a superscription in front of it or above it. Many of the Psalms have what we call superscription, so they'll tell you a little bit of background or they'll tell you who wrote it. So from Psalm 2 itself, we don't know who wrote this. But actually, we do know who wrote this because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 4, we're told that David wrote this. So this is a psalm of David. Um, and let me, just, let me just read it for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. And against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, though the though this psalm is written by David, and some have tried to say it was the coronation of David, uh, there is it's very, very difficult to pin this on a, like a specific historical event. The, the psalm is most definitely prophetic. Really, David becomes the smaller, lesser he just becomes a tool in the Holy Spirit's hand to write this psalm, speaking of Jesus Christ. This is one of the psalms that's, that's quoted or, or referenced the most 
or one of the most in the New Testament. It is most definitely a prophetic psalm for us. So the psalmist begins with a, a question that's not really a question because it's spotlighting the futility of what the, the kings and the rulers are, are doing. When it, when it asks, why are the nations in an uproar? The psalmist isn't asking uh, to know their individual reasons. Maybe they didn't believe, maybe they doubt, maybe they're angry. There's all those things going under the surface, but he, he gets to the core issue. His core message is that it's futile. And so why, because of its futility, why do they do it? I mean, it's like the people who call 911 when they were told to evacuate, you say, why didn't they evacuate? You feel bad for them. But it's like, why didn't you listen? Again, God's message is 100% accurate. I know weather forecasters and governors and mayors and all that air all the time. So we, we can doubt their word, but we must not doubt God's word. Why are the nations in an uproar or a rage? Why do the nations rage? So here, the idea of rage is, is the idea of, of someone throwing their fist up, up to heavens and, and, and refusing God's reign and rule. Uh, the, the nations here is a reference to the Gentile nations. Remember, David is writing as a, as a Jew, as an Israelite. So God appointed Israel to be a special nation before him as a spokesperson to the entire world. And ruling over that nation was David, King David, anointed by God to rule Israel and to be an ambassador to the nations. Now, David failed grossly. Israel failed grossly. But obviously this points, points to something much more important. It, the, the nations here are rebelling against Israel. They're rebelling against David, but ultimately they're rebelling against God and his anointed, as we'll see in a moment. The, the peoples, you see the, the, the expression here, the nations in an uproar. The peoples are devising a, a vain thing. Now, the, the, the NASB uses devising a, a vain thing, but the Legacy Standard Bible, I think, helps us see an important parallel. The, the Legacy Standard Bible says, why are they meditating? Why are they meditating on a vain thing? Now think about the word meditate with what you saw in Psalm 1. Look at Psalm 1. It may be on the same page of your Bible, right? So look at ver the end of verse 2, Psalm 1, verse 2. So this is describing the righteous man, and in his law he meditates day and night. What are the peoples doing? What are the nations doing? They're meditating not on the law of God, but they're meditating on a vain thing. A right? vain thing just means empty. It's a waste of time. They are fighting against something that they cannot change. Right? And verses 2 and 3 go on to, to describe the, the futility of their rebellion or, or describes the rebellion. So again, the psalmist says in verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Now, the, the, uh, the structure of this text is putting an emphasis on, on kings and, and rulers. The kings of the earth, the rulers take counsel together. And, and there's an emphasis there to say it's all of them. Right? Just like in a sense we can say that there's no not one that seeks after righteousness. Talking on an individual level, there's no one who's born righteous. All must be converted. Here there's an emphasis on the entirety of the nations. The entirety of the nations are in rebellion against God. Except by his grace he, he converts them and changes them. But, but the whole emphasis is on the totality of their rebellion. And, and look at what they're doing. They, they take their stand together. Now, think about history. Do nations usually just gravitate towards working well together, peaceful relations? And the, you know, they just naturally come together and say, I'll help you, you help me, and let's, let's work on this together. Just, you don't even have to look at history. Just look at current events. What's happening right now? And you know that's not the case. Neighbors, neighbor nation goes to war against neighbor nation. Right? These, these, these things, they, they just conflict. And Europe is, a, is just a, a history of one war after another of neighbor conquering or battling another neighbor. It's just in its history. It's in its blood. It's not going to change until Jesus comes back. Right? But, but the point I'm making is here they're doing what? 
They're working together. They're working together, taking their stand together. Right? You know what's going on here? This is the old strategy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's my ally. Now, my enemy I'd normally fight, but if my enemy is the enemy of my other enemy, he's my friend. And, that, and that's what you see going on in Europe. They really don't really care too much about each other. But there are these strange alliances. But in this text, the world is rallied against what? Or against who? Look at it in your text. Right? The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against the Lord, and against his anointed. They have a focal point of their rebellion, and it's God and his anointed. In the immediate context, that's David. But David, again, small David in the text. Large is Christ and the Messiah. This is ultimately who who, uh, the scriptures are talking about. And here's the voice that I wanted to see. I wanted you to see in verse three. They, they, it's, it's uh, in most of your Bibles. There should be quotes around the statement of verse three. Let us. This is firsthand witness. This is firsthand testimony that the Holy Spirit is giving us. He reads the hearts of the kings and the rulers. And what do they say in verse three? Let us tear their fetters apart. The there refers to to Yahweh, to the Lord, and to His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart. Now, do you guys have fetters? It's an old word. Right? Unless you're a farmer, you probably don't. It's used something to bind, like uh, to bind together, to work together. It's 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 used along with the idea of like um, uh, binding oxen together. So there's a, um, it's not the only term that can be used, but the the idea is there's somebody. There's somebody binding. There's, there's a fetter. Is somebody like an owner putting something onto an ox and getting it to do what he wants it to do? So, fetter is just a, it's just a metaphor to understand rule, right? So these rulers want to overthrow the Yahweh's rule and the rule of His anointed, and and the lat, and the other parallel phrase at the end of verse three says, "And cast their cords from us." The ropes, literally, cast the ropes off of us. We don't want his rule. We want to be in charge. That's what they're saying. And they're uniting to defeat God, to try to defeat God and try to defeat his anointed. But but once they, if they were successful, you know what happened? They would feud amongst themselves as to who was going to be the king and then they would destroy each other. That's That's exactly what would happen. But they're fighting against the Lord and His anointed. His His anointed is uh, Jesus Christ. The anointed is is the Hebrew term where we could translate Messiah, right? So He is the Messiah. It's the Lord's anointed, and and in a general sense, the Lord's anointed was any king the Lord anointed to be king over Israel, right? But ultimately, the, all the earthly kings of Israel failed. Jesus. The, the ultimate king did not fail, perfect, and he is the anointed. Right? And that, that's really ultimately who we're talking about here. These rulers want to rebel. They want to be their own lords. They don't want God to be Lord. Sounds a lot like what's going on right now, doesn't it? Right? People individually want to be their own gods, want to be their own lords. But the rulers of the nations, the rulers of the states, want to be their own gods as well. They want to be in charge. They, they don't want to be held uh, in uh, accountable for their actions. Now, the, uh, the rebellion of the kings of the earth have been just repeated and repeated throughout human history. What, what this, these verses are talking about, particularly verse 3, uh, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. This has been going on since the fall, but it culminates at one specific point in history, and that is the incarnation, the coming of Christ, coming of the Messiah. Right? The world takes its stand against Jesus Christ. And I'll show you this just real quick. Turn to Acts 4, Acts chapter 4. 
keep your place in Psalm 2 because we'll be coming back there. But Acts chapter 4, picking up discussion at verse 23. And, and the context here is that of the healing. Um, Peter and John healing a man who had been lame. And the Jewish rulers are not too happy with this. Their power base is being threatened. Look at verse 23. So Peter and John are released. They've been released from, from prison. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So there, um, Peter is, is tying together what Psalm 2 said with how the nations murdered Jesus and yet they couldn't stop him. And yet that their murderous traits, their stand against the Lord didn't stop at the resurrection of Christ. They didn't say, oh, we got it wrong. Okay? But they continued to fight against him. And, and so they do that by fighting against the servants of Jesus. And you saw how the servants of Jesus, the apostles, Peter, John, the others, were they intimidated by that? No. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit came upon them with power that they would preach with confidence. Why would they preach with confidence? Because Psalm 2 was in their mind. So, If you're a believer here this morning, get Psalm 2 in your mind. Because it gives you confidence in evangelism. gives you confidence when people threaten you. Now, God in His providence allows His people to endure much hardship and even to be martyred for Christ. But even facing martyrdom, you can do so with Psalm 2, knowing that that is not the end. You can tell your, those who oppose you, you can kill my body, but you can't touch my soul. And you know what? God's going to raise my body up better than it's ever been before. So it's not really worth keeping anyway. Right? So just th that's the confidence that they had because of Psalm 2. They knew the Lord reigned. Was Jesus around? No, Jesus wasn't around, just like he's not around right now for us to see. But they knew he reigned. They knew the end of the story that God wins. And that confidence fueled their life. They weren't intimidated by the culture around them. But notice also they, they weren't in hatred to the culture around them. They wanted to do what? Evangelize the culture around them. They wanted to be obedient to make disciples of all the nations. Right? Beginning right there in Jerusalem. So that was their focus, right? Just like our focus shouldn't be on hating the world that hates God, our goal should be to take a stand for truth upon the word of God and the confidence of God's power of what he says and to lovingly be a witness to them, calling them to repentance and faith and warning them that judgment day is coming and they will not, they will not uh, successfully rebel against God. Now go back to Psalm 2. So the, the voice of the rebellious nations is they're raging. They want, to, they want to tear God's rule off of them. They want to be free is what they, what they think. But really, remember we talked about, uh, we talked about slavery a few weeks ago, how, how sin deceives and they think that casting off the cords of God's rule, they'll become independent and free when in fact all they'll do is become slaves of sin. They, they won't really be free. That, that's a deception of sin. But, but that's nonetheless what they think. But we see another voice in verses 4 to 6. 
we see another voice, and that is our Father in heaven. He who sits in the heavens, he gets really nervous, and he wonders if the nations are going to successfully overthrow his kingdom. No, you know that. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Though the world gathers their mighty weapons, though the world can come together and build another Tower of Babel, and though the world can come together and build the most powerful weapon, even more powerful than nuclear bombs, even if all that were to come together, none of that is a concern for God. He sits in the heavens and laughs. The psalmist reinforces his sovereignty. Let me just read this together. He who sits in the, in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The psalmist reinforces the absolute sovereignty of God by describing him as he who, what? Sits in the heavens and does what? Laughs. So if you're concerned about something, number one, you're not going to be sitting, are you? Right? So the fact that he's sitting shows that he's entirely unconcerned that for his kingdom. That's not in doubt here at all. The other thing that sitting shows is God is pictured. Keep in mind, God the Father doesn't have a body. So this is this language is poetic language that describes God in language that we can understand. So he's described as sitting in the heavens, not because he's just unconcerned that, that the nations are going to overthrow, because they're not. But he is sit, pictured as sitting because he's enthroned in heaven. And where do kings sit? On the throne. Where do they make their judgments? On the throne. So he is sitting in heaven about ready to make a declaration or in, in this case we're going to hear what what he's going to say um, at, in verse six but he's saying that from his throne right? the lord sits in heaven and laughs this is a, a laughter a mocking laughter and, it, and it, it's emphasized there in the second phrase the lord scoffs at them he scoffs at them now some of you may wonder, and maybe some of you are bothered by the fact that God laughs in a mocking way at his enemies or that he scoffs at them. But I want us to understand, first of all, that God is perfectly righteous. So anything God does, even if we have trouble understanding it, is done righteously. Who are we, uh, sinners, to stand in judgment of, of God and his word? But understand, what do, the, what do the unbelievers do, particularly the, the rulers who stand against God? Right? They mock God all the time. They scorn God all the time. They, they laugh in mocking ways at God, like they did at Jesus. You know, he said, he, you know, as he's on the cross, they said, oh, he said that he, he, could, he could save people. Why can't he save himself? Right? They mocked him while he was dying. So what you see here is, is God bringing some revenge. Does that bother you? That God takes revenge? Right? Now keep in mind that, that you and I are sinful beings. And so God tells us not to take revenge. We are not permitted to do that. In Romans 12, 17 to 21, um, gives us an instruction about not taking revenge for ourselves. Just Turn there a moment. I think it's important for us to see this because we need to set these things in our in our minds when we talk about the, the nations and those who rage against God. Romans chapter 12, and I'd like to begin reading a verse 17. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
For in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God tells us never to take revenge. Why? Because in our sinfulness, we're not gonna we're not gonna met out uh, justice. We're not gonna we're not gonna return like an eye for an eye. We're gonna we're gonna get go try to get two eyes for one eye. Right? That's that's the sinful man. And so God's saying, don't do it. Leave room for the wrath of God. Right? So what we're seeing here with God laughing and scorting them is the wrath of God perfectly uh, poured out upon those who deserve that judgment. So there are some things that you see God doing that we may not do. And this is one of those. Right? So God can take revenge and he is doing. This is a picture of him doing that. And notice he says there, uh, he laughs. And he in verse 5 it says, he will speak to them in his anger. And this kind of looks at a future judgment. Notice the future tense. Then he will speak to them in their anger and terrify them in his fury. Now, the the Lord is going to bring his judgment. I mean, you, you see it a little bit in the language there. He will speak to them in his anger. Do you, do you know that on every encounter with the person of Jesus, like the glorified person of Jesus in the New Testament, that that people, even believers, and that's really who he appears to, believers, Christians, fall on their face as a dead man. Because they realize that even even in, in their in the even though they're believers, they're not perfected, there's sin within them, and instantly they realize that they're a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And that terrifies them. And you know what? On all those occasions, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. What do you think is going to happen when Jesus comes in his anger? And when he comes in his fury? It just gives you a little picture of what's going to happen. People are going to melt before him. They, they won't even offer resistance. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the ridiculous illustration of trying to fly a candle to the sun. It's, it's a silly illustration, but long before you can ever reach the sun, the candle's melted and gone. I mean, even we would be, right? I mean, even if humans tried to go to the sun, it'd be a suicide mission. You'd be burned up before you ever got there. And that's what's going to happen with God's judgment. It's a good picture for us. God is righteously angry. And, and contrary to what our world will tell you, he's not just angry with sin. He is angry with sin. But who brings sin? Who does sin? Who has the heart of a sinner and rebellion against him? It's, it's sinners, people. Right? God is angry with sinners every day. And yet, in his mercy, his long-suffering, he's holding back his wrath. He is holding back his judgment. So the people will hear the, the message of, of the gospel, repent of their sins, believe in Christ and be saved, and he can adopt them into their family. But judgment day is nonetheless coming. And he is going to pour out his wrath upon, upon sin, upon sinners. Now look at what he says in verse 6. Here's the Lord's pronouncement, really. The Father speaks, and he says... But as for me, they want someone else to rule over them. But here's my decree. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now understand what's, what the Lord is saying here. First of all, God is decreed. Whatever God decrees happens. Happens in his timing. And God has decreed that Jesus Christ is king. Nothing can thwart God's decree. And that's why the psalm opened up. Why? Why do the nations rage? You cannot defeat God. You cannot overcome him. Whatever he says happens. Why? But as for me, I have installed my king. And it's speaking about the anointed. This is speaking about Jesus. And he's installed my king upon where? Zion? My holy mountain? 
He could have said in the heavens, I've installed my king in the heavens and he rules over all. Why does he say Mount Zion? Well, one is because Mount Zion was the location that God chose to reveal himself. It's not really a pretty place. I think one day it will be. But right now it's not. It's rocky. It's not even a very beautiful mountain. More like a hill on our standards. Well, in Ohio it might be a mountain. But in Colorado it's just going to be a small hill. So God chose a lower mountain to reveal himself, I think because he wanted to be unlike the pagan gods. The pagan gods, you have to go up in the mountains to meet with your God in many cases. God comes down to his people. And he chose to reveal himself on on Mount Zion, which is also Mount Moriah. So this is the place that God chose to reveal himself on earth. This, beloved, in Psalm 2 is a text you have to wrestle with when you're talking about a future reign of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're not just talking about little David. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense or belittling sense, but he's the earthly king. We're talking about about Jesus Christ, a descendant of David. He has the right to rule, right? And God says what? I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So in a sense, the Lord is is promising that the Lord Jesus is going to rule over earth from Mount Zion, his holy mountain. It's holy because he chose it. That's his, that the place where he chose to reveal himself, uh, where the the temple was located and will yet be located, his temple, the temple of his body. So understand the Lord has made the Lord God, our Father, has made a declaration as to who will be king. But there's another voice. We've seen the, the we've heard the, the voice of the rebellious, of the nations. We've heard the voice of the Father. And now we get to hear the voice of the Son himself. And this is in verses 7 to 9. Let me read those for you. This is the voice of the Son. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh, He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Here we need to pay attention to who's speaking. I've told you that it's that it's the son. But look at the pronouns. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh, of of the Lord. Speaking of the Father, he said to me today, yeah, sorry, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Right? This, this is the son speaking of the Father's declaration. So this is pretty neat because this gives us a little window into an inter-Trinitarian discussion that happened before we were ever around. Happened in eternity past. The son echoes here, what the father proclaims. I mean, just, just think about this. What, what does the son, son do? He doesn't turn his focus to the raging nations. He turns his focus to the father's declaration. And he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The, the anointed one, the one the father has ordained as, as king, reiterates what the father has told him. Right? He is, he is uh, basically recommunicating what the Father communicated with him. Now, why does, why does the Son do that? Why does Jesus repeat what the Father told him? Well, there's, there are some important reasons. First, to glorify the Father. To say, this is I, I am coming to do his will. He glorifies the Father by proclaiming the word of the Father. Something for us to learn there as well. And in proclaiming the command of, of the Father, the Son embraces the decree and and makes it kind of His own. He commits Himself to carry out that plan. When when kings were inaugurated, what what's one of the things that God commanded them to do? Very few of them actually did it. It was that they would make a copy of the Word of God up for themselves. In other words, they would read it and they would have it. In other words, He's wanting them to to commit themselves to obey the Word of God. That would be on their heart and be on their mind. So in a sense, this is what Jesus is doing. This is, again, before he's incarnate. This is, this is occurring. This conversation occurred long before, but now is being revealed to us through 
the Holy Spirit through the psalmist. The, the son is committing himself to embracing the father's command, his decree. And, and the son's reliance upon the decree of Yahweh, the decree of his father, shows that he did not put, obtain his, pos, his position by any kind of uh, self-serving attitude. You know, a lot of leaders, like some of the disciples early on, they wanted to be first among the disciples. They wanted to, to have the first place in, in the kingdom of God. And that's the heir of Satan. Satan threw himself forward. But here you see Jesus just saying, I didn't thrust myself forward. The Father gave me this. He promised this to me. So he's, he's showing us that, again, just that he is, he's come to do the Father's will. Just like he says here when he was on earth and the incarnate, uh, as a incarnate son of God, that his food was to do the will of God. And, and that, that, he could say that because he's done that for his, his entirety and eternity. So just think about it. Application-wise, just the retelling of the word of God brings the Father glory. You're called not to invent the gospel or adjust the gospel or to make the gospel more palatable. You are called just to just to tell the word of God, just to be an ambassador. And if people reject it, then they reject it. You can pray for them. Perhaps the seed of the word of God will yet have fruition in their lives. But your job is just to communicate what the Father has said, the word of God. And, and the Son tells of the Father's decree in something very special. It's hard for us to understand this. Uh, he, he says um, in verse 7, this is the decree of Yahweh, decree of the Father. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Now, the imagery here is trying to communicate with us something inherently difficult for us to understand. The relationship between the Father and the Son. Let's say what it's not saying. Right? This is not saying that Jesus was created by the Father or that he was birthed by the Father. Right? We need to stop thinking biologically when it comes to language like this about the Father and the Son. Why? Because Jesus helped bring creation into being. He's not part of biology except when he became incarnate. Right? So here we're talking about something that happened long before time began. Uh, this is something that I would describe as, as a doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. It's, it's almost, uh, some people describe it as a contradiction of, of terms. Eternal, long-lasting generation speaks of a, almost a moment in time. But it, it speaks not of a moment in time, but of the Son's relationship with the Father. That he comes from the Father, but not in a way that causes him to be created in any sense. I talked more about the eternal generation of the Son when I did a series on the Trinity. You can get those messages online and talk more, more about that. But understand that this is, this is something that this, this decree was something um, said or, or decided in eternity and not in time. It doesn't ultimately, it doesn't refer to his incarnation. It doesn't refer even to his resurrection. It doesn't refer, refer to his ascension. Although all three of those play into him being a son. So they do have implications. But this declaration is a declaration long in the past, not one that's in the future. You can, you can see that. He said um, in, verse seven, uh, in verse 7, he said, He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's not he will say. So remember Psalm 2 is long before, thousands of years before Jesus became incarnate. So this is something in the past. And it has to do with Jesus' reigning as king. So the fact that he is his son, we can use the analogy of a, like, a, like, a, like a father, like a son. A son is going to, going to portray the father. In an earthly sense, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. But in a heavenly sense, this is perfect. Uh, Jesus perfectly represents the Father, and so the Father decrees that the Son will rule for Him. You know, a lot of people kind of segregate the Bible or the God of the Bible into like, well, there's the the, the angry God of the Old Testament, and then there's the loving God of the New Testament, talking about Jesus. But guess, as we're going to see, guess who does the judgment in the future? Right? The Father has given all authority to the Son to exercise judgment. So it's the same God. The God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are one God. Right? 
one God, compassionate, loving, flowing with loving kindness, and yet will judge sin. He will not uh, overlook, ultimately overlook sin. There, there is a, a subjugation that Christ, Jesus Christ, is going to have over the nations. Look at, look at verse 8. He, this is the Father talking to the Son, relayed to us through the Son. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Okay. This helps us see that that declaration, you are my Son, is talking about, about reigning. Right? It's about kingship, about rulership. Ask of me, just like believe any loving father who, who could give anything to a son. He could say, son, you know, ask me of anything and, and anything good for you, I, I will give it. And God is doing that for his son. He gives the nations, the nations that rebel. Right? So the father hands the nations the very ends of the earth as your possession. Again, this shouldn't just be interpreted as spiritual language. That the Lord will spiritually, you know, rule over the nations. And so this this is something. The very ends of the earth have been given to our Lord and to our God to reign over. Now, now don't misunderstand. Jesus reigns right now from heaven. He is king right now, just like he was king when he came as a baby, and he lived the perfect life to die for your sins. He, he died on the cross, was buried. In the grave for three days, he was resurrected. Then he ascended on high. He did that all as king, and he's king now in heaven. This is speaking about a yet future time when he will reign on earth. Now, the son will possess all of the ends of the earth, even though the nations rebel. And and notice how how the father is going to give the son all that he needs. And, and look what he's going to do with them. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is speaking about a future judgment day. Jesus will break them with a rod of iron. That word rod could be translated a scepter, a kingly scepter, and it's made of iron. And who who is he going up against in, in, in the poetic language? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Right, so I was tempted to bring an uh, earth uh, clay pot, put it right here, and just let it fall off, and it would make a mess. But help you see how easily it shatters. Right, so you have a you have an iron, a scepter of iron, and clay pots. Another imagery just to show the futility of this battle. Right, the Lord is going to come, and He's going to break them, defeat them, conquer them. He's going to shatter them. Right. So there's going to be no resistance against him. None at all. I mean, just look how easily Jesus does this. It's not difficult. And we know in Revelation, he's going to do this in part by the word of his mouth, just speaking it like he similarly did in creation, speaking it into being. Now, now can you imagine uh, Monaco? Now, many of you don't know what Monaco is. Monaco is the second smallest country in the world. It's less than one square mile in size, part of the French Riviera. Right? has a population of 39,000. Can you imagine Monaco going against France and challenging France and saying, we're going we're gonna to conquer you? France would say, just like, you're like a flea. They would flick it away. Right? That's kind of what is a good illustration of what Jesus is going to do. I mean, it, even the whole world, all the nations gathered together are nothing compared to his power. And, and we, we see what, what we see this in, in other places of scripture. Uh, note that in, in Revelation 2.26, and maybe just, just turn there for a minute because there's some other passages I want to show you. I want to, I want to turn to the end where God shows us some pictures of what's going to happen. Go to, Psalm, uh, go to Revelation 2. And I'm going to pick up at verse 26, Revelation 2.26. Nevertheless, what you have, and this is the, to this message to the church at Thyatira, 
Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is Jesus doing there? He's saying, I've received authority to shatter the nations, to break them like like potter's wear. And I'm going to share it with whom? With the church. So the church is going to share in the Lord's reign and rule and even conquering of the nations. Now, I want you to see some other things from Revelation from the end. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12. Look at verses 5 and 6. We don't have time to set too much of the context except this is a prophecy of the Messiah, of the one who, of Jesus becoming incarnate. Verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That, that woman there is pictured, or Israel is pictured as the woman there. It shows you how much Psalm 2 flavors into the end. Look at Revelation 19. Beginning of verse 11. So I need to set a little bit of the context here. In Revelation 19, you're at the end of the tribulation. The nations have rebelled against God. They have come to march against Israel. And Israel has finally seen that they crucified their Messiah, repents of their sin. And you see in verse, we'll pick it up in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, So with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back with the church in battle to conquer his enemies. And it's not much of a battle. That, That shatter like earthenware, just he speaks with his mouth. And they're dead. They're gone. Battle's over. But that's not the end. For a thousand years, the Lord reigns. He reigns on earth as the perfect king. And there's a reason for this. The reason is that in order to fulfill prophecy, Jesus, the perfect Messiah, needs to reign over an earth that still yet has sin. To show that he can be sinless and uh, and lead his people in righteous triumph, even in a world of sin. Now, now stay with me. Go to verse 20. So, for that thousand years, Satan is bound. But at the end of that thousand years, look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because the testimony of Jesus... And, and because, um, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right. Um, sorry, let's start over. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all those that were martyred during the tribulation, they come to life. The rest of the dead did not come to life. That is, all those that the Lord slaughtered right, at the end. Right? And the ones that died during the tribulation that didn't believe in Christ, they died. They don't get resurrected. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is, is one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So again, you see the emphasis on a thousand years. Now look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So to understand what's going on there, the nations of the earth rebuild. They regather their strength. They forget what the Lord did a thousand years earlier. And they rebel one last time. Satan inspires them to go against the holy city, to go against Christ, have one last crusade against God. And in the description of them, it says they surrounded the camp. They were like uh, they were like the sand, right? The sand of the seashore. That's how numerous the armies were. And you think, you know, weapons nowadays are are, are powerful. Think about what men can do, given a thousand years under the reign of Christ, to, to turn and twist that. Right? But but notice what happens. Fire came down from heaven and what devoured them, gone in an instant. And that's the last battle. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the very first thing you read in verse chapter 21 is, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For God judged the older, that's when we enter a kingdom when there's no sin, no further rebellion. And Christ rules over all. Now you see the futility of the nations right? from Psalm 2 and from the book of Revelation. It's futile. It's futile. But God doesn't end there. He doesn't end on a harsh note. Look at verses 10 to 12. And here I believe we're seeing the voice or hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yes, David penned this but he penned it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who beckons and calls people to repent of their sins and come to Christ. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. So now, O King, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. He is calling the kings of the earth, the rulers, and by application, every single one of us here on earth today to show insight. Take warning. Don't ignore God's warning. It's going to come. We do not know the time. You may die before then. In which case, you still need to be prepared. But this judgment day is coming. Take heed. Show insight. Trust the word of God more than your own intuition. Is, is essentially what the Holy Spirit is saying. Serve Yahweh with fear. It's kind of a, a term we don't like to hear about fear. But here, the term fear is very much connected with worship. This is calling the nations of the earth to serve the Lord, Yahweh, the God, with fear, with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. You know, even as we rejoice in our king, we recognize that when we're in king's presence, in the king's presence, the holy God, when you finally see him, there, there's going to be a, a bit of trembling there. It's going to be joyful trembling. It's going to be trembling because you're in the presence of the holy God, the one who created you, the one who created everything around us. Again, this is its picture. It's a poetic language describing reverence and worship. 
and that leads to its culmination, kiss the Son. So the, 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 the Spirit here is saying, this isn't just a kiss of like compliance. This is an affectionate kiss of submission, but a, an affectionate kiss of worship. So the imagery there would be like of when a king conquered nations, those that weren't killed were often required to come kiss the feet of the king. And they, they were forced to do it. But this is an invitation to come kiss the feet of our Lord and worship. Worship him in holiness. Worship him in love. Because what? The warning is this. Lest he become, what? Angry. And don't don't think about this on a human level like, you know, fathers can, can become angry and then the kids fear them, but but the father's wrath is not not righteous. Often it's it's unrighteous wrath. The, the, the imagery here is, is a perfect righteousness. The son one day, is, his long suffering is going to be done. And that anger is going to be kindled in order for him to pour out the judgment of God upon the earth. And if you don't trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't submit to his rule and his authority and recognize that he died for your sins, and if, and if he died for your sins, then your sins are forgiven. But if he didn't die for your sins, then you're still under God's wrath. You are still in your sins. And if that is the case, when the Lord returns or on the day of your death, you are going to perish, just like all those that we read about in Revelation. You're going to perish, and you're going to face that judgment, that white throne seat judgment, and your name will not be written in the book of life, and you will perish. And when you use the word perish, it doesn't mean you go out of existence. This is talking about eternal judgment. Eternal judgment forever. This is serious. But the Holy Spirit just doesn't end with that warning. What is he saying? How blessed are those who do what? Take refuge in him. There's that call. O kings of the earth, exercise discernment. For though the king is angry with you now, if you will take refuge in him, he will not, he will cover you. He will cover your sin and he will not defeat you. He will not conquer you, not shatter you like earthenware. Beloved, we have, a, we have a, a, a role in this, right? There are loved ones in your life who have not accepted Christ. They're not interested in Christ. They're just living their lives. They're happy-go-lucky way, maybe not so happy but they're not so crushed that they'll turn to God. Take them to Psalm 2. Show them what the future looks like. Call them to exercise loving, to repent of their hatred toward God and, and show loving kindness towards God. There's a beautiful illustration, modern illustration of this, and I link to it in the Ebridge article. It's in the pastor's column. Don't read it now, but read it later if you haven't already. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur actually wrote an open letter to Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, um, pleading with him to turn to Christ. Because Governor Newsom has turned up the wretched heat, even using the words of Christ on billboards to support the murder of babies, making California a so-called sanctuary city for abortion, the slaughter of the innocents. And MacArthur doesn't go after his politic. He just warns them that the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon him if he does not repent. And it's such a, a good example for us how we need to, at one hand, call people to repentance and warn them and, and plead with him, on the other hand, plead with him. And, and he, he ends the letter to say, by saying that, that he and the people of Grace Community Church and people around the nation will be praying for Gavin Newsom. So I would like us to join with him in praying that, that Governor Newsom would repent of his sins and believe in Christ, right? turn away from his wicked ways. His soul is in jeopardy. He is going after God. He is one of those rulers that Psalm 2 talks about. 
that's just raging against God. He's meditating on how to overthrow God. And it's for naught. It's futile. It's vain. And there's many other of our leaders like that today. And from Washington to even our own state and Columbus, probably to our own city, who are raging against God, who need somebody to tell them of the Lord, to warn them of what the impending judgment, and to pray for them. That's our role, beloved. That's our role as ambassadors of Christ. Right? Not to slink away and see how easy of a life we can have, living a Christian life in fairly comfortable America. Our role is to be ambassadors for Christ, wherever God has you. And he will strengthen you to do that. He will give you courage to do that. And he will bless you. Remember his last words here. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.